Kia ora. you're listening to Aotearoa in Focus. Ko Dan Armstrong toko ingoa. For over a quarter of a century, Yanni Johansson has stood out in Ototahi Christchurch. That kid living on Bamford Street has helped shape our second biggest city and has been on council since 2007. That's why I caught up with Yanni for a corridor last week. A reflection on those early days and in the second half on the city as it stands today. Plus a healthy dose of the Linwood area too. So, let's crack into it. This is Aotearoa in Focus, and this is Councillor Yanni Johansson. Um, so I had a kind of interesting upbringing where um, I've got an American father and a New Zealand mother who met in Africa. Uh, my father followed my mum back to New Zealand. Um, and uh, unfortunately, before I was born, he was uh, deported. He'd overstayed his visa. And so he, he went back to the United States, uh, whereas my mum stayed in New Zealand. And effectively, what that meant was that the first time I saw my dad, I was about six, and it was in Sydney because he couldn't come back to New Zealand because he'd, he'd, he'd overstayed. So, um, but I think I was really, I was really fortunate in that mum uh, moved to Mexico when I was a little bit older after living with my dad. Um, me and my twin brother went and lived with our dad in America. Mum moved to Mexico. And so in summer holidays, we'd go and live with mum in Mexico before coming back to New Zealand um, and doing high school, half of my high school in New Zealand in Christchurch, and then um, going back to America and concluding high school in America, graduating in the class in 1993 in Washington, D.C., or, or Arlington, Virginia, which is in that kind of greater Washington area. So I've always felt very fortunate that as a child growing up, uh, I got to live in four different countries which is you know reality is um that's more than most people see in their lifetime and I guess the era in which I was growing up in Christchurch New Zealand and around the world was a time when you didn't have access to the cheap airfares that you have where you have had um up until recently obviously COVID has changed it but you know um it was quite common for me to have people in my class that had never been out of the South Island for example and never been on an airplane so I always felt really grateful that I got to see so much of the world at such a young age. I think it was a really powerful lesson in understanding difference and understanding uh, diversity across across the globe, which I think has, has suited me well as I've matured. And were there any challenges with adjusting to, you know, schooling in America? Well, it's very different, and it's very different considering that I, I went to Rudolf Steiner. Um, so Rudolf Steiner... Um, you know, was was quite alternative, uh, especially compared to the American school system. But uh, yeah, the, a few challenges. Uh, I, w- I was lucky in that the schools I went to in America were quite well regarded. So I think I was fortunate in that regard. But um, I, I did go to uh, a, a high school that was a charter high school. Um, and I actually transferred myself out of that after a year to the public high school, which I, I just enjoyed a lot better because it was it was more reflective of the community that I lived in. There was greater diversity uh, and also more opportunity. There were more programs um, that you could participate in, which which I enjoyed. But yeah, I think the, the contrast in the education systems and the styles was certainly something to behold. And again, I think I'm fortunate having had the opportunity to experience um, 
so many different forms of schooling or, or styles of schooling. I think also in Christchurch, I mean, I was quite lucky in that I went to Rudolf Steiner. And then when I came back from America, um, I enrolled at Hagley, Hagley Community College. And yeah, I, I was, I, I feel very grateful that I, I went to that school at, at a time when it was, um, had a really amazing principal, really amazing staff. I mean, I'm sure it still does. It's just that my experience of the school was a really positive experience um, because they were a school that embraced not just the traditional maths and science subjects, but actually, um, for me, I was more into drama and English. And, you know, it was really, the school, I think, really enabled me to develop those social and creative skills, which are, I think just as valuable as the maths and science. And by the mid-90s, uh, you were campaigning uh, with Tim Barnett, um, and soon you'd be taking on the police. Um, can you tell me about those those early years of act- activism and local politics? Yeah, I mean, there was sort of three three main things that really um, triggered me to get involved in in politics. I'd never been actively involved up until that that point. Um, the first was that I I, I had a job uh, working in Rickerton Mall, and uh, that wasn't a very uh, positive experience. Um, there was the uh, Employment Contracts Act, which basically gave the employer most of the power. Um, I'd been unable to get an employment contract from my employer, who said it was, you know, really for the, it was really the benefit of him to have the employment contract, and I didn't need to worry about it. And then, effectively, um, I wouldn't get paid for things like working overtime or, or working public holidays, which was required. And I sort of challenged that, and then. Uh, effectively one day came to work and had been told I'd been dismissed um, and my hours had been given to someone else, which I I thought was uh, a bit of an injustice. And as a result, I reached out to uh, the local MP's office at the time, who who was actually Leanne Delzell, um, who was the MP for Christchurch Central. Uh, And upon ringing her office, I was advised that there was a new candidate in Christchurch Central, um, Mr Tim Barnett. Um, and uh, so long story short, I made an appointment to go and see Tim uh, and offered to help on his campaign because I just believed in the Labour Party around what they supported around employment um, law reform to make sure that workers like myself would have better protections than under the current system, which I felt was very unjust and very unfair. So that's so what got me started working with Tim, uh, helping on his his campaign where he went from, I think, having, I think it was a 655 vote majority, the narrowest majority in the country. <laughs> um, but really grateful to have met Tim. You know, he's been an amazing mentor to me and, uh, you know, really pleased to see that he was incredibly successful uh, in, as a local MP and, in fact, you know, really developed one of the highest majorities in the country into his second term. So very fortunate to have um, been able to help on his campaign. And as I did that, I obviously got more involved in the political political world. If it wasn't for some ass at the Mickerton, at the Rickerton Mall, you may not have ended up in politics. What does alternative nineties Yarni look like? You end up, you know, being the manager of the JB Hi-Fi at the mall, or what happens uh. there? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I think for me, I I really would have probably got involved in um, 
I was always quite keen to get involved in teaching. Um, and, and uh, you know, I did go to university, but I, but I didn't complete my studies. Um, and again, you know, this was a time in New Zealand where I think for people like me, the sort of um, Gen Xs where, you know, suddenly overnight we had a huge cost of going to get tertiary education. Uh, because of my unique situation, um, I wasn't, um, I had my father's income in America in US dollars, so it wasn't, you know, the student things like student allowance weren't that, weren't that helpful. Um, and that compounded with the high cost of tertiary education. Um, families, you know, of my generation in New Zealand never had a chance to save for those huge costs, unlike in America where, you know, when you're born, your parents basically know if you're going to go to university, there's a huge cost, and so they can save and, and you can be aware of what that will be and plan for it. Um, you know, my generation in New Zealand, I don't think we really had a, had a, a chance. Uh, in fact, you know, we were faced with very high borrowing costs. We were charged interest on our loans while we studied. Uh, we, we were facing, um, uh, you know, the, chal the challenge of not just um, being accepted, but then also, you know, the, the ease of money for, for course-related costs, which were quite high as well. Um, and many of my of people that I knew that went to university, you know, they, they, they got the easy money um, and didn't have degrees to show for it, which is really unfortunate. You know, it felt like at the time that the system was really about maximising the number of people going, regardless of the impact on the individual. Um, it was for universities to operate in a competitive model to get as many students as possible to get the funding and the money coming in. So, yeah, for me, I'm not sure what I, what I would have done. I, I probably would have gotten into teaching, um, may have got involved in, in drama or the creative creative sector, but, yeah, ended up involved in politics. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, don't regret that, but it was certainly more by chance than by plan. So looking beyond that alternative uh, Professor Yani version of history, um, you ended up uh, on your local community board and, and then eventually representing the uh, community, well, the, I was going to say electorate, the electorate of Linwood. Um, uh, can you describe that community to me? I, I live in Wolston now and I, I live in effectively what is called the Linwood Ward, which really looks after the older industrial suburbs, working class suburbs of, you know, Charleston, Phillipstown, Bromley, uh, Limwood, a bit of Avonside, Wolston. And, uh, you know, it's it's no longer connected to the central city in terms of the inner city that I used to represent when I first stood on the community board. But as a councillor for the Limwood Ward, I, you know, my, my reflection is that this is a really down-to-earth um, area. Um, it's full of, you know, generations of families that have lived in the area um, and are committed to the area. Um, there's, there's been challenges, but, you know, fundamentally it's a good place. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma that comes when you live in the Eastern Christchurch. And I think a lot of that is unwarranted. Um, probably the big issues as I see them for the area is that the in environmental inequity that exists where um, industry has been allowed for far too long to basically pollute the urban waterways, to um, pollute the air, um, adjacent to residential communities and you know whether it's public services such as the council's organics plant or private industries such as scrap metal dealers um, or, or quarries or, or whatever else it may be 
you know, I think there's a real issue. Um, there's no quarries in my area, but there has been, you know, a lot of concern raised about things like air quality and dust and 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 the impact that that has on people's health. And I think, you know, what you can see, I think clearly in society, people are becoming less tolerant of allowing those sorts of activities to impact on both the environment and on people that live in those communities. So to me, that's kind of a big challenge at the moment. Well, in, in that case, and I know you've got a pretty polluted canal um, running through your ward. Christchurch had a history of smog for a long time. Um, I'm old enough to remember that. What, what, what are you at council, as well as ECAN or maybe even central government doing about it to and improve the Linwood area to make it healthier? So one of the really big things that has been a, a decade of um, campaigning has been around the organics plant. When I first was elected to council in 2007, that was one of the first decisions that I was asked to make around the council table. At the time, I abstained from the vote because I was really concerned around the lack of information about um, what the impacts would be on our waste services, this was going to the three bin system. So it was getting rid of the old black rubbish bag and going to the um, curbside collection, both for organics, recycling and waste. And, you know, I've looked back at that decision because uh, while the, the rubbish and the recycling collections have gone pretty well, um, you, you could argue that in terms of waste collection, you know, it really wasn't about minimising our waste to landfill um, output. In fact, what I think the bin system shows is that it's been easier for people to dispose of waste to landfill, which isn't obviously a good thing. But in terms of things like ease of collection, convenience, um, and people actually liking it, people do like it a lot. The, the one area where it really fell down was the organics plant was um, decided to be designed, built, and run by a private operator in partnership with council. And there were two options. One was to go out to a forest um, away from residential, and the other was to go into the Bromley area adjacent to residential on the coast. And unfortunately, and regrettably, that um, deliberate decision by council has led to over a decade of complaints from local residents as to the impact of the odour on their quality of life. There has literally been thousands and thousands of complaints that people have made to try and get enforcement action around the impact that it's had. And it's only been recently that we've managed to get the environment Canterbury to take enforcement action against uh, the operator and council to hold them to account in terms of what's objectionable and offensive beyond the boundary, both in terms of odour and dust. And that to me is um, something that really highlights the shortcomings of the Resource Management Act. So I have made submissions to Parliament um, and to MPs around getting change around the Resource Management Act to deal better with the risk of air pollution and odour, because clearly at the moment, some, where something like an organics plant can be consented adjacent to residential areas on the coast with the prevailing wind that blows the odour into the residential neighbourhood, is clearly an unsatisfactory outcome. And it shouldn't take a decade and thousands and thousands of complaints for action to um, get that to be stopped. Uh, where we're at at the moment is that um, council is going through a expressions of interest 
phase to find alternative technologies or um, proposals to move the plant. Um, and we're, we're working through that process. Um, so it's not, it's not finished in terms of dealing with the odour that's coming from the plant, but you know, we are making good progress towards coming up with a much more viable solution that has less community impact. How, how much longer do the people of Bromley have to deal with the stink? Well, there's two, there's two stinks at the moment. So there's the organics plant uh, and that, you know, I, I'm hopeful that that can be resolved in, you know, three years. Um, but obviously it'll depend on the expressions of interest that we get from people around what's possible. It does tie in a little bit to what central government are doing around looking at uh, more of a regional approach to waste management and, and resource recovery. And there's some interesting moves that government are making around, you know, um, I think nationalising standards around recycling, but also around the um, resource recovery of, of green waste and, and food waste. And so, you know, hopefully um, our council can work with our regional neighbours like we do with the um, Cape Valley landfill um, to come up with a um, organics recovery process and plant that can meet the regional needs, but also be aligned to what central government are, are looking to do. Uh, the other issue that we've got in, in Bromley, um, but it's not just Bromley, and again, it's, um, you know, I think what's really important is that um, although these both of these plants are located in Bromley, um, it's a much bigger issue. You know, I, I get complaints from Walston, I get complaints from Limwood, I've had complaints from Sydenham, I've had complaints from Avonside, um, Phillipstown. Um, there, there are many communities that suffer from the odour um, and the stink that's coming both from the organics plant, but also the second thing that we're dealing with, which um, is quite different because, you know, the organics plant was a deliberate decision by council to locate the, the processing plant where it was. Um, the wastewater treatment plant fire was obviously an accident and a really, really um, massive disaster in terms of the impact on our community and the impact on our wastewater treatment plant. But it was, you know, something that was unexpected, was not deliberate, um, but is having uh, an equally um, and, and certainly powerful um, impact on, on people's well-being and both mental health and, and physical health in, in the local communities and the eastern sides of the city. The, the council staff are optimistic that um, with all the different technologies that they're putting in place and the interim solutions that they will get um, hopefully a, a, a significant reduction in the stink by September um, and are hoping that that will generally lead to a, a more comfortable environment for people to live in. Yeah. Um, zooming out to the broader Christchurch, thinking about the rebuild, do you think people are right to feel that the rebuild has been uneven, that the central city has gotten more of the focus and, and suburbs have been left behind to an extent? Oh, without a doubt, I think effectively that's, you know, the, the sadness of the earth post-earthquake recovery has been that we knew all the research showed us that the areas that could least afford to deal with a greater impact and burden of the recovery were the ones that were the most at risk of doing so. And 
you know, I really feel like we haven't addressed the inequity that existed um, and was compounded post-earthquake. And then you can say, well, you know, post-COVID, it's, it's even growing even, even more. So it is, it is really frustrating when, when I see the huge budgets um, that are being spent on, on improving the central city. You know, to, to give you some sort of contrast, you know, one city block um, in Gloucester Street, which is a pretty new road, which has already had some quite nice improvements along it um, outside the new library. The council are, are spending $3.4 million between Manchester and Colombo Street to upgrade it to make it more, um, more, more uh, pedestrian friendly, cycling friendly, um, to suit the performing arts precinct that hasn't been built yet uh, and you know that's 3.4 million dollars to a road that's in good condition that's actually got pretty good footpaths already got good pedestrian amenity for at least half of it um, certainly um, the contrast to streets in my area that um, don't drain properly when it rains uh, they have stagnant water that attracts mosquitoes uh, they have weeds growing all through the guttering because the guttering is in such bad condition. They have repeated um, potholes appearing. Uh, they have cracks through the footpath, cracks through the middle of the road. Uh, they're a hazard for people, you know, to walk along um, without tripping over in some cases. Uh, it's, it's just unfathomable, really, that um, places like Gloucester Street would be seen as a priority versus actually fixing the, the roads in the east and the footpaths in the east. And, you know, it's not just me that feels like this. It's, it's been a common theme that's come through the residents' satisfaction surveys, um, where roading, you know, and infrastructure repairs um, has been the top issue that people are upset about. Council's um, got historic levels of um, dissatisfaction, so we've got the highest levels of dissatisfaction and the lowest levels of satisfaction that we've had in recent history. Um, and, you know, the, the roading and, and the fixing the broken suburbs is one of the key things that people have repeatedly told us both through the resident survey and the draft annual plan or the long-term plan when we've consulted. So, you know, I think, I think that's just one example where, uh, you know, a very tangible example where you can see what I would effectively describe as gold plating the central city at the expense of the broken suburbs, because you know that's money that we're not spending fixing the broken roads that are costing us a fortune to maintain, and not only is it money that we're not putting into the eastern suburbs, but once those upgrades are done in the central city, the maintenance cost also becomes a lot higher because of the quality of the materials and you know the way in which they need to be maintained. But I think you know if you if you zoom out from a street level, you can also see that, um, you know, part of the central city recovery in terms of the government's blueprint was to put public facilities on private land, and that has had a massive cost. So the council's own central city plan, we had about $800 million for the central city. When the government announced the blueprint, the unconsulted on blueprint um, that put most of the public facilities on private land, it increased the cost of our central city plan from 800 million to $2 billion. And that was without any agreement around who was paying for what and who was doing what. And so I think, 
you know, ultimately what we've seen is a huge amount of money going into the central city with a high degree of uncertainty about who was doing what. It's required many discussions with central government to get clarification, um, but also contributed to long delays and things actually getting done because of the lack of clarity. And, you know, I, I can't, I can never understand or accept the need to move a stadium three blocks from Lancaster Park to the central city. I mean, most places around the world would just laugh at us to think that the current Lancaster Park was not in the central city. It, it worked completely well for um, where it was. In fact, just before the earthquakes, there was a Bledisloe Cup game there and they closed down parts of High Street and Ferry Road. They made a really nice walking uh, space for people to go and, and it worked fine. And so, you know, it did activate the central city. Um, but, you know, the cost of moving it a few blocks has been massive, both in terms of time and delay. Likewise, you know, the Metro Sports Facility that's been built. We were often told after the earthquake that these facilities had to move from places like QE2 because the land was so badly damaged. And yet the land is probably just as bad where it's being built in the central city as it was out in, in QE2. Um, and, you know, the tragedy is that that's been a huge cost. Um, it's still not open. And, you know, almost an entire decade of no aquatic facility in the central city because um, also there was the demolition of Centennial Pole. Um, so, you know, it just, to me, just shows you that um, it's very easy to spend money when it's not your own. Um, and it's very easy to become desensitized to the huge costs of these central city projects. But the reality is that there is a cost and someone has to pay for it. And it's going to be future generations, absolutely, as well as the current generation. Are you disappointed that we seemingly wasted the opportunity to transform Christchurch into a place that, you know, that was more accessible, had more equity? Um, you know, you, you're the second largest city and you still don't even have, you know, rapid rail transport. Absolutely. There's been some lost opportunity. I think the, you know, the idea that um, we would use um, transit corridors, um, you know, one of the, the dreams I had was to extend the tram back up to Sumner and to New Brighton. And I think you would have had a really nice, you know, um, transit system that would work for locals as well as tourists. So you'd get the, the double benefit. Whereas at the moment, we've, we've got a tram that is very expensive and it goes around the central city in a, yeah, you know, it's like 30 bucks. Figure eight. And, um, you know, hats off to the people that run that. You know, that's a private company. Um, and, you know, Christchurch Attractions, they give a lot back to the city. They do a lot for this city. Um, and I'm sure it's been incredibly difficult for them over the last decade, you know, with the impact of the earthquake and COVID and, and all the other things that have happened. But, you know, the reality is to me is like, you know, we could have had a functional tram system that went out to the east that would help revitalise those communities. You look along Ferry Road, for example, you know, probably the cost of adding bus lanes and cycling lanes along it would, would pay for the tram to be extended. And you've got a whole bunch of antique shops, you've got a whole bunch of character buildings. Um, and I just think it would have been a really nice way to sort of recognise the historic parts of the city. Um, and, you know, a light transit system out to the, out to the airport and out to the growth areas um, would be fantastic. We've just, last week at council approved a $12 million bus line going to Paulswell. It's one of the fastest growing areas in the city. 
and you're just going like, why are we not doing light, light transit? You know, um, we, we definitely, we definitely have a lot of urban sprawl. I think we lost a real opportunity after the earthquakes to have a more consolidated form as a city. Um, we've seen a lot of what I would call low quality infill housing, um, which isn't particularly well designed. We've lost a lot of trees. Uh, I think there's a number of things that we could have done to be much more sustainable. We didn't need a big convention center in our central city. You know, my idea was have, have an unconventional center built in the red zone that was fully sustainable, you know, made of wood and made of um, things um, that had a very low impact on our environment that also showcased our natural features along the Avon Otakaro. And, you know, what a, what a fantastic tourist attraction that would have been rather than just to plonk a big convention center in the middle of, of Cathedral Square. Um, and, you know, we've just lost such an opportunity with having people living in the central city too, with the way in which we've allowed commercial developments to, to go along the river. And, um, you know, I mean, I know it's the, zone, the zoning was allowed for, but, you know, I would have thought north facing across the river, instead of having a health precinct that could exist in black boxes anywhere in the city, you would actually want north-facing residential apartments being built that would add vibrancy and vitality. I mean, there's lots of lost opportunities, and you know, it's. I guess it's it's easy to look back. I guess we do need to look to to the future. But you know, some of the other um, wild ideas that I had was to put bring back a nurses' hostel to have, you know, nurses who are studying in our city actually have access to accommodation close to the hospital because we know that there's issues with um, students, you know, finding affordable accommodation imagine the vitality that we'd have if we had an old sorry if we'd reinvented the old nurses hostel that we used to have in the central city the one that was in Hagley Park next to the hospital imagine if we'd put that into the, the, the health precinct the impact that that would have had on you know vibrancy vitality but also affordable housing for students right next to where they're training which to me would be a very sensible thing to do in addressing some of the inequity that exists uh, and we're going to wrap it up in just a moment because I'm sure you're busy. Uh, you've, you've got a child now and you've been on council for sort of five terms now on, on top of your time on community boards and youth council and all that type of thing. Um, what comes next for Councillor Johansson? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think, you know, for me, I think... I'll, I'll stay involved in politics as long as I can see that there's areas of need. And in, in my view at the moment, what I'm seeing is that um, the priorities are still not right in terms of dealing with the environmental inequity that exists. And I, I think the Christchurch Wastewater Treatment Plant Fire is a classic example of, of, of that, where, you know, there's it's just a struggle and a battle to get resources to get a response to get the appropriate support in the community so I'm, I'm very focused on um, three things I think before I before I I would hang up my boots which would be addressing the broken infrastructure that 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 is still damaged post-earthquake right the roads that need to be renewed um, the infrastructure that needs to be fixed the second thing is cleaning up the Apawaho Heathcote River yeah, the Apawaho Heathgate River has just been an industrial dumping ground for so long. It's, it's lacked the investment to improve its urban water quality. And 
there's been a huge community renaissance in terms of understanding its importance and wanting to be involved and collectively trying to do something about it, but it still lacks that political will to invest significantly in it to improve its water quality. The, 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 the third sort of thing, again, would just come back to that environmental inequity that exists around um, things like air quality, air pollution, uh, that whole land use planning in communities that enables um, industry to be established adjacent to areas where it's really not appropriate. And, you know, that. I mean, I'm just dealing with a number of examples. Um, metal recycling yards, scrap metal dealers, you know, car recycling. We've had tyres, we've had, uh, we've got shipping containers being established um, in sites that are, you know, really significant ecological sites. So I think there really needs to be some equity brought to that environmental practices that are enabled. Uh, and that really needs to be cemented in um, urban planning. And, you know, that includes things like tree canopy coverage. So the Limmer Board has one of the lowest rates of tree canopy coverage in the city. And with the intensive housing that's proposed to be built, what we see is a huge risk that the you know poorest parts of the city end up having the least amount of trees. And we know that there's so many benefits that accrue to communities when you do have um, both green space and, and trees. And so again, that to me speaks to that environmental inequity. But I, I think if I wasn't involved in politics, I, I would probably look to get involved in teaching that I, I would still come back to um, either working in the community in some form or, or um, getting into teaching. To me, um, you know, I look back at my life and think I've been really grateful to have some amazing teachers along the way that have helped me get to where I've got to or some amazing mentors. I think one thing I would reflect on is that, you know, I think the other fortunate thing for me was that um, through getting involved in commun different communities, uh, and volunteer work, that I, I met the most amazing people, meet the most amazing people. And, and you just, um, there's so many different ways to give back in society. But, you know, I think what makes Christchurch in New Zealand unique is that we do have so many special people that do contribute to the fabric of our society. And, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to, um, would be nice to be able to return the support that I've had through my privileged um, career in local government um, back to people that could benefit from it. Fantastic. Um, and I suppose I better ask the most important question. Um, how long have you been rocking the little mohawk? Um, well, uh, <laughs> the, the mayor likes to call it uh, like a Tintin thing, you know, like, uh, and I do have a white dog, but she's not called Snowy, she's called Luca. Um, but, uh, oh, I, I can't remember, to be honest. It's, it's been a, a pretty, a pretty um, standard haircut for Quite a while now, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely over a decade. Thanks, Yanni, and to Tim for helping organise this chat. I intentionally didn't focus too much on current events, as things are still moving in the city. And the day after our chat, Council voted to recommence their inner city stadium. What is clear is that Yanni and Christchurch story isn't over yet. And that wraps up another interview. Because episodes are released when I get the chance to make them, don't forget to subscribe or follow, and they'll be delivered to you piping hot and fresh on whatever platform you're listening to this on. In the meantime though, have a great week. Stay warm out there. Oh, it's a chilly one. Cheers. 
हरे राम